this year NAIDOC was because of her we can and I believe that to be so true that because of these women we can um, it was their strength and resilience that allowed our culture to continue. Welcome to Come Along for the Ride where we make the world a better place for horses. I'm your host Tracy Malone. I was born on the country of the Wiradjuri people and this podcast is brought to you from my home in the Sanford Valley in the northwest of Brisbane, Australia. I'd like to acknowledge the Turrbal and Yuggera people, the traditional custodians of this land on which this podcast is made and where my family and horses live and gather. I'd like to recognise their connection to land, water, community and our sacred animals. I am grateful to Elders, past, present and emerging, for keeping this sacred land here in Sanford safe and protected throughout many tens of thousands of years. I have great pride to live on country where the oldest known human beings tended to this land. I'm also grateful that you have taken the time to choose this podcast at this very moment. Thank you for being a part of the global change we are making to the welfare and training of horses. If you'd like to support the podcast and all the work that I do, then you can. Just head on over to patreon.com slash come along for the ride podcast and sign up. From as little as a cup of coffee a month, you can help me keep this podcast going. There are many tiers that you can choose from, and if everyone who listens gave only $5 a month, it would make a massive positive difference to me. There's a tier in there for small business subscription, just like the one Peter Papp took up from Peter and the Herd. This is the one where your business gets a mention each podcast. Peter works with equine behaviour and trauma recovery and equine communication, human and horse relationship building. Peter has actually had communication with my mare Gypsy, who's the one you see in the podcast picture with me, and he was spot on about everything, so I can highly recommend his work personally. You'll find the links to Peter's work in the show notes. It's a crazy time for us all at the moment with social distancing and mandatory isolation in some countries. I thought the least I could do was to bring you some of your favourite episodes again. Be inspired by the stories of these amazing people and know that wherever you are and whatever you are going through, this too shall pass. This episode is something I've been wanting to do for a long time. Being born living in Australia, I was taught Australian history at school and I was taught that Aboriginal people, the first inhabitants of Australia that were here for thousands of years before us, I was taught they were savages and they did not belong here and that what we were doing was a favour for them by taking their children and teaching them our ways and showing them how to run their land. I know, right? At least I got to grow up and make my own choices. Even though this story is of Australian Aboriginal women, this story is the same the world over. Anywhere that there has been colonialism, there has been thousands of murders of the first people of that country. It is easy for us to get the wrongs that were done as they did not happen on our watch and we'd never let them happen again, right? Well, in Australia, since 2004, the number of Aboriginals in custody has increased by 88% compared to a 28% increase for non-Aboriginal Australians. What are we doing about that? We can't sit back and say this isn't our problem. Still today, there are children of the stolen generation who have not been able to find their way home to their family. It's not like they can go back to their country and find their family. Their country was taken from them. What are we doing about that? I also used to believe that I did not hurt Aboriginal people, and it was, in air quotes, so long ago, end quotes, that they needed to move on and get over it. Now with my background in counselling, I know that trauma caused from the invasion and the stolen generation will live on in their DNA until it's healed by us all. I was not personally a part of the trauma, but I certainly have made a choice to be a part of the solution. And I really hope that everyone listening will make the choice to join me as being a part of that solution. For myself, I now choose to not celebrate Australia Day on the 26th of January as that is the day the land was taken from the Aboriginal people. This day does not include all Australians. It's not an Australia Day. It completely excludes those who were here first. 
to join together and to find a date that includes Aboriginal people will help in the solution. I also teach my children as much as I can about Aboriginal culture, as I see it as my culture, having been born on this land. I'm proud to say I was born in Wiradjuri country, and my son was born on Waka Waka and Turrbal country. I read my children books about Aboriginal culture. I've been searching for more information, but it's really hard to find. We need to find this information and share it. It's not up to Aboriginal people to keep their stories going. It's a responsibility for us as much as it is them. I believe that we cannot find true connection with the earth and our land, thus our horses, unless we respect all of those that have come before us. I flew to Adelaide on the weekend and before the plane lands, and I do this every place I fly to, I say thank you to the traditional custodians of that land for allowing me to visit and I promise to tread lightly and with respect. And I always have a wonderful holiday wherever I go. It's something so simple and it's something we can all do. Why don't you try it? Did you know that Aboriginal people had a sophisticated farming system in place before white man came? Did you know that they were able to grow crops, fish and trade with other tribes and live within the means of the land? Did you know they use burning techniques to regenerate the land and manage it to bring future abundance and keep diversity of the ecosystem? And did you know that Aboriginal women were the creators of bread? That was them. And now you know these things. And these are the things we need to keep talking about. That is why I'm doing this podcast, to help educate us all on something that's important to us. This is why I'm doing this podcast, to help educate us all on something that is important to us all. This interview is with Dr Tori Simone, an Aboriginal woman who has spent years writing a thesis on Aboriginal stockwomen, their legacy in the Australian pastoral industry. Tori is not only an incredibly well-educated woman, she's also a stockwoman who lives in the outback of Western Australia on a property that is 1.3 million acres. Let me say that one more time. 1.3 million acres. She musters cattle, no longer on horseback, but she used to. She lives a privileged life compared to that of the women she writes about. In this interview, you will hear how it is for a stockwoman now and how it was for those who came before her. It's a fascinating story. Tori is a brave woman choosing to tell this story. Her legacy is that she is telling the story as something for Aboriginal people to be proud of. She leaves out most of the atrocities, as the trauma does not need to be opened again. But the story of these unbelievably resilient and capable women must live on. I believe This is the type of story that we need to keep telling to begin the healing of colonialism and to move forward as one people. Here is Tori. Tori, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land, um, past, present and emerging and you're a bit, a little bit different to the usual guest I get on here. Usually I have horse trainers or I have people who are doing incredible types of body work with horses. But your background is as a stockwoman. But the thing that I want to talk to you about today is a thesis that you wrote on Aboriginal stockwomen, their legacy in the Australian pastoral industry. How long ago did you write that thesis? I actually finished writing the paper in um, 2017, early 2017, So, but it took four and a half years to collate all the information. That um, was my next question. When did you start the thesis? <laughs> I started then, but I probably started before that because I knew for my doctorate that I was going to be writing about Aboriginal stock women. It just... It was a no-brainer for me that it's somewhere where I come from um, and, and being in the pastoral industry myself, um, the lack of heritage that and history that we have, um, nobody was talking about it. So somebody had to. Somebody's always got to be first. I love it. Now, 
Before we dig right into your thesis, first of all, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, your life with horses because it was something that you did for a long time and a bit of a passion of yours. So I just want to set the scene on, on why it is you felt you needed to do this thesis by talking a little bit about you. Did you grow up with horses? Yes, I did grow up with horses. I used to do all the gymkhanas and, and do all the equestrians and three-day events. Um, and I did e a droving course um, in my late teens to do one of the last um, I was actually based in around Birkengarry area for that. And what country is that? What Aboriginal country is that? That uh, There's a whole lot of cross-country in those areas. Um, offhand, I couldn't tell you all of their names. Um, but I'm from up in Coal Country, which is Winton, which is where our droving was actually going to take place. Um, mm -hmm. And I never got to be on the team, but it was something that we had to learn tracking and um, movement of cattle without any um, modern technology. Um, we had to do it all the old way. Um, and I spent many days on the horse and, and out camping and um, learning to look after it with just yourself and, and your horse. And who was it who taught that? I did not know there was a driving school. No, it, was a, it wasn't a driving school. It was, a, a, it was like a, a competition, I suppose, to, to go on this big drove that they were actually doing across Queensland. Wow. Um, so, um, because I'd been competing in three-day events and the equestrians and um, going to shows, um, I've, somehow I'd come across it and thought, well, that's what I want to do. And at that stage in my life, the pastoral industry was not something I'd really actually thought about. I grew up around Brisbane um, and Bribey Island and the beach and um, had horses but never really looked at the the industry of, you know, horses and, and what driving actually, well, I mean, I knew what driving was, but never, I don't think, really thought about it as a teenager. Um, it was just something that we would, an experience that we could have. Um, and it wasn't until later in life that when I started travelling across the country that I started to think about all these open plains and what was happening beyond the white line. I like that, beyond the white line. And what did you find? A whole sub-community of people um, and lifestyle, a totally different way of living, being self-sufficient. There was no running down the road if you forgot milk because the shop was normally hundreds of kilometres away. Um, dirt roads, flies, lots of flies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And a lot of hard workers <laughs> and just a whole new way of life that I hadn't even envisioned that existed. And I suppose that came down to that we weren't really taught about the historical aspects of the building of um, this country in, in the way of the pastoral. We heard about the sheep, but you didn't really think about it. Yeah, because Australia was built on the sheep's back. That's something I heard when I was a kid. Yeah, but you never really thought about it much other than sheep and you got your wool. Um, but you I don't think, I suppose, as a younger age, you ever thought about what was actually going on out there and how people lived. Um, I mean, I, I have power 24 hours a day now. I never used to. Um, and, and, and that's generator. So just the little things like uh, the last station that I was on, we used to have to turn the power off at 10 at night and turn it on early in the morning. So, But I've been on a station where we only have power for three hours in the afternoon as well. So having to live with those sorts of, I think people take modern technology for granted um, nowadays. We do. Every day we do. Yeah. Welcome. And, and even before the smartphone and even before the mobile phone, we've had a lot of luxuries for a long time. We're very, very very fortunate. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Having to pump water and, yeah, you can't call the plumber and there's no electrician that comes to fix things or... Yes, yeah, so and there are all the, all the 
hard facts of life, but there's something a little bit romantic about being out in a station as well. What were the amazing parts of it? What drew you out there? For me, I think it was the country, that spiritual connection to country that I have um, and wanting to find myself and find my identity and, and being a coal woman, um, just finding out what it actually, who I was as a person and that comes from having that connection with country and learning to track properly, um, learning about your environment and where you live and how to look after that environment. And a big part of it is the people that are in that environment with you as well. Um, they play a big role in, in, how, in how you adapt. A lot of people think, oh, it would be great to be out on the land, but it's not for everybody either. Um, it, it is a very romanticised view that some people can have, and it is very romantic, beautiful sunsets we have, and, and I think sometimes we actually take it for granted, um, having wedge-tail eagles fly around or, and, and the sunsets we see and, and just being able to stand on the top of a, a hill and look out over the, the landscape. It's a big um, sky, isn't it, out there? It's a big sky and it's a big country um, and there's lots to see. Um, someone always, you know, people say you cross the Nullarbor, there's nothing out there. And I always said, well, you obviously have your eyes closed because there's a lot. There's lots to see. You just need to look. For those who haven't ever been to the Australian Outback, I remember I worked at the, and I've only ever been to Birdsville, and it's as kind of far as I've been. I, I lived in St George, six hours west of Brisbane here for a while, but it wasn't the same as when I flew to Birdsville. I got off the aeroplane and the moment my feet hit the ground, something strange opened up inside of me. Something, something opened when my feet hit the ground out there. I don't know what it was, but it was extraordinary. And the words that came up from my body were, oh my God, I love this place. And it wasn't Birdsville at such, as even though it's a great little community, it was the expanse of the outback. It was, I felt small immediately in a really good way. It's an, it's an amazing place, the Australian outback. And if you ever have a chance to come to Australia, if you're from overseas, you must get out there somewhere. There's loads of outback. You must get out there and put your feet in the dirt because it's something to behold. So did you find yourself out there? Did you find what it is you were looking for, Tori? <laughs> um, I think I did. I, th I found my passions. Um, I love the outback. I love um, having my daughter, teaching my daughter school out here in the outback. It's, it's just a wonderful experience for her to be able to have, not surrounded by technology, and to be able to have hands-on experience with her learning um, in an environment that not many kids get to see anymore and the realities of living nowadays. Um, I think we've lost that with a lot of our technology that the kids have lost a, a touch with where their foods come from um, and, and a different way of learning rather than being stuck in a classroom um, when she was in grade one, we used to count the grapefruits that would fall off the fruit trees in the yard um, and use that for mass. Um, so we were achieving mass, but we were also collecting <laughs> the fruit yeah. that yeah. we would be having. So, And to be able to be in touch with nature. So um, she loves lizards and frogs. Um, and to be able to see them in their natural environment without having to go to a zoo or kangaroos or or the odd dingo that we'll come across, or watching the cycles of the birds, um, especially the emus, um, watching the Milky Way come across, um, because in Aboriginal culture, the Milky Way um, is emu, um, so you know when he's laying, when, when the female's laying her eggs. Um, so to be able to then watch the babies come out and know the different seasons and see the flowers change, I think, a lot of our kids these days have lost touch with all that. They, and, and I'm, I suppose, 
I feel privileged to be able to live in that lifestyle every day um, and not have to, I suppose, stick to the grind. But it's very, it can be hard work too. We're just about ready to muster. Um, so it'll be very long, hot days working with scrub cattle um, that haven't seen humans very much. So it keeps you on your toes. <laughs> and are you going to muster with... Give us, set the scene. Are you helicopters? Are you utes? Are you motorbikes? Are you horses? Or a lot? Um, so this master will actually be trapping. Um, so we have um, yards that have set up and they're set up with a special gate that has fingers so the cattle will be able to get into a watering point, um, but they won't be able to get out of that watering point. Um, and then we will go around to each set of yards and process those cattle over a period of days, depending on how many come in. We did a big muster at the beginning of the year where it was um, helicopters, motorbikes and bull buggies. Um, the terrain for us here is not suitable for horses, so um, we'll use the iron horse instead. Mm -hmm. And we will do that for probably the next six weeks because um, we are on 1.3 million acres. So... It'll take us quite a while to get round to all the watering points that we have, but any watering points that don't have yards, we will turn off the waters there and push the cattle into um, different watering points to be able to trap them. But cattle are smart too, so <laughs> some of these older bulls know what's going on and don't go in the trap, which is um, when we will later on muster with a chopper probably a bit later in in the year, maybe early next year. So we also bang tail, so that just means cutting the bottom of the hair of the tail off so we know that they've actually been through the yard. Mm -hmm. How long do you estimate it will take you to muster the cattle? And a couple of questions. How long will it take you to do cover the 1.3 million acres? That's mind-blowing. How many cattle do you expect to muster in that time for this muster, which isn't the big one? Um probably take us around about six weeks, maybe a bit longer, um, depending on breakdowns mm -hmm. um, and things that may go astray, as they do sometimes. Um, we were probably in the range of about 3,000 cattle, which isn't many, it doesn't sound like very much for the size of the property, but the size of the properties that we have in Australia stations um, particularly ones of this size, are because not every area has suitable feed for cattle either. And we also do carbon farming, so we must move our cattle around off certain points to allow regeneration of that environment. So um, the industry is really starting to change now and, and looking at those caring for the environment um, so that it becomes sustainable in the future. Yeah, we have to. The whole of the farming um, over on this eastern side is having a, a big wake-up call with this drought. Everyone's saying, yes, we can give money to farmers and we can support as much as we can, but the the climate's changing. We have to be smarter now. Oh, definitely. Um, we've, we have solar bores. We're lucky. We have a, 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 a bore system, table water. So we're able to use bores. We don't have dams, which is good in a way that you get a lot of um, evaporation when you have dams. Yeah. So the bore water isn't wasted and anything that goes into the overflow goes back down into the well. So we try and limit the wasting of any water that way. Um, and, and just moving cattle around to ensure that your grasses grow back and... And, and keeping that environment stable yeah. Um, because once it becomes salinated, well, then you've sort of lost use of that paddock as, as well. Yeah, regeneration is one of the most important things and the land will regenerate as long as it doesn't get trashed too much. So it's great to hear it's happening yes. out there, even on somewhere as big as you're on. So compared to the forming of White Australia, you've even got it pretty easy really, haven't you? Even though it's still oh, hard. 
I have water that comes out of a tap. Mm. I don't have to love water. and um, I have a few luxuries. We have refrigerators. and Yeah. This episode is brought to you by the Natural Horse Spray. Are you inundated with flies and biting insects? Does your horse suffer from Queensland itch? If so, head on over to EdenRiverEquestrian.com to purchase your horse some natural and ethical relief from biting insects and itch. There are two blends there to choose from. The Kiowa blend is for insect repelling and the Gypsy blend may heal Queensland or Sweet Itch on your horse and will also repel insects. That's EdenRiverEquestrian.com and if you use the code come along for the ride that's all lowercase and one word come along for the ride you will receive 15% off your order. Yeah. But in the way of mustering, I think we have it pretty easy um, compared to historically speaking of, especially at the time of my research with Aboriginal women um, riding horses, it it was tough times for them. But it was tough times for them not only physically but politically as well. So stuck between two worlds and trying to navigate those two worlds in a way that being able to survive. So I think this year with NAIDOC was because of her we can and I believe that to be so true that because of these women we can, um, it was their strength and resilience that allowed our culture to continue um, and obviously men have played a role in that also but from my research a lot of the men were decimated um, through frontier wars and various skirmishes across the country. And there was only women left to be able to do these jobs that men were doing, building fences, building homesteads, putting in water systems by hand with just a pick and a, a shovel. Um, you know, I'm lucky enough to have loaders and equipment that, to be able to do the same sort of jobs. And before we talk further about these incredible women as a part of your thesis, what is the right um, advice we need to give those listening now? Because I know there's a, some respectful things that happen within the Aboriginal culture um, for people who have passed on. So what is it we need to do now? So we just um, allow people to know that, um, that there may be names of people that may be spoken that have passed away. Um, we acknowledge that and that gives them a time to reflective whether they want to continue to listen because it can be distressing for people to hear of um, names that have not been spoken for a very long time. And and most Aboriginal people will adhere to, um, as long as they know, they at least have a warning that something is coming that they might find distressful. At, in my research, I it, it's a written thing because I have images of people um, so it just gives them the opportunity and, and that makes us respectful to um, to Aboriginal people that we're showing them respect. But, but we also at a time where we need to be talking about these people that have played, you know, important roles within Australian history and, and the pastoral industry and continue to play in the pastoral industry and in, in Australian way of life. Yeah, I agree. These women need to be talked about and recognised for the extraordinary work they've done. So what was it like researching for this doctorate and where did you start? Who did you find? What on earth, how did you find them? <laughs> um, where did I start? I actually started with my honours degree, so that set my foundation. But because um, you have certain criteria, obviously, that you need to adhere to when you're doing degrees but I started doing my research and I found a lot of stuff on Aboriginal men and that started around the 1930s 1940s you can find Australian literature that talks about Aboriginal stockmen and I thought well hang on I know there's Aboriginal women that have been in the industry and I know that the pastoral industry especially in Queensland started earlier around the 1860s and the 1880s it really started to take off and that's where I, I found the women. I found four head stock women 
in that early period. Um, and that's when my original paper was actually called um, Aboriginal People and the Impact They Had in the Pastoral Industry. And once I found the Aboriginal women, I changed it to um, Aboriginal stock women because I felt here was a group of women that were strong and resilient and their voices hadn't been heard, they hadn't been acknowledged and they weren't being recognised for the part they played in establishing it, helping to establish um, the Australian pastoral industry. So who were these first women that you found and what did you find that they were actually doing and why were they doing the work? So the, the women that I felt, well, the women were doing the work because there was no men left and we'd come to a time of letting Aboriginal people in. So we're talking at a time politically that um, you couldn't hire women as stock women, so, which brings up another issue of drovers boys, um, which were women dressed as men. And they were doing all sorts of jobs. They weren't, I mean, obviously, there's a lot more to pastoralism than just um, mustering cattle. Mm -hmm. And this is where they were building, um, helping build the homestead. So depending, obviously, on the homestead, whether it was a company that had it or if it was, as we refer to them, as the battlers, so the men that were out there to find their fortune and um, in this new land that they thought they were finding. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so these women had taken up the role and, and you, I think it needs to be looked in the context of you've got a fairly violent start to Australian history in these areas. Um, Enormously people so. Had a fear of, Enormously. People had a fear of Aboriginal people. Newspapers were perpetuating that fear. So, and being a stockman in those days wasn't, it, people didn't do it. They do it for the love of it. They never did it for the money. It was. It's never been a job that pays a lot of money. Mm. <laughs> um, so it was very hard to get stockmen out there if and that was if they didn't come to skirmishes on on their way out there to do these specific jobs so um but they would be tending to the various animals so they might have also um goats around the house and chickens that would need to be looked after they would build the fences which would be the start of the homestead some women would obviously become domestics and do the gardening Others were seen to become um, amazing horse riders um, and being able to work with stock. So they would normally obviously become um, stock women. They did everything that, you know, um, building the fences, repairing them, road building. Um, obviously in the early days we had open range grazing. So that means that there was no fence to the boundary. So um, a major role that um, these women would play is being a boundary rider. So that's checking the boundary to ensure that all your cattle has stayed on your side, hasn't gone off to next door neighbour's property um, and also checking waters. But Aboriginal women took advantage of that because they could check on sacred sites on their way, ensure that cattle weren't getting into them and destroying water. Um, and one significant part of being on the in the industry back then was the horse plant so um, and these women would have had to maintain all that um, lawn hill station up in queensland was originally run by 13 aboriginal women wow um, so depending on the time of year as well um, they would go out um, and get brumbies so, and all the horses would have specific jobs. You would have horses that were used for night watch. So that would be if you're mustering cattle or trying to keep uh, a mob in a group at night, they would 
someone would sit up with their horse and watch them in case someone got startled and, and spooked the mob. You'd have other horses that were um, good scrub runners. So, um, and those women, that was about riding through heavy scrub to catch and rope the wild cattle that had not been mustered. So then we'd have horses and women that would be tailors um, or good cutters. So tailors would follow the, at the back of the mob um, and cutters would be able to cut a, a specific beast out of the, the mob and bring it back. And then there was also the horses used to carry all the supplies. So, And all these horses would have been broken in by women on the station in the time of, um, especially up north, it would have been done normally through the wet season. And on top of that, having to keep track of all the equipment for the horses, so um, the saddles and the reins and and everything else that would go along with it. I wonder where they learnt their horsemanship, horsewomanship skills. Do you have any information on that? That's one thing I haven't, other than when I talked to Arnie Marge, who was actually one of my contributors, she just seemed to, it just seemed as if it came naturally to them. It wasn't a skill they really needed to learn. It just was something that they did. Um, I think in those days too it was sink or swim sort of learn but it was just that they were put on horses when they were very young and they were always around them so and I think having cattle in the yards I think women tended to have a natural ability to empathise with animals I'm not sure if that's the right word well, it would make sense because as people of the land before white man came here, it was going with the land, it was reading the land, it was seeing, and I could be completely wrong, so please Uh-oh. help me out here. Aboriginal people read the animals to tell them what was going on with the land and they would know if a certain animal was doing this, then something else was happening. It, it was kind of like the change of the seasons. So is that correct? Oh, definitely. And 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 that's with a lot of our paintings. That's what we paint about. Someone asked me, "Why don't you ever paint about the sky?" Um, because we're not, and and we do because we have a, a large um, astrological side of Aboriginal history as well and culture. We're always we're always reading the land. So when certain flowers are out, that means certain animals are out as well. So it was about reading every all those little signs that. Or you knew when the rains were coming because certain fish might turn up in river systems. Yeah, so that's what I mean. So because we have the luxury of going to the shop or the supermarket and buying our meat and and, uh, bringing it home and cooking it, we have no idea what it is like to hunt and gather. It sounds completely realistic to me that they would just they would probably know more about the horse than those that introduced the horse into Australia in the first place because their ability to read their land, because their ability to read animals for hunting and for use in different things, it would just be another animal to read and and have a relationship with. So I kind of believe you that it was just the way that it was done. And, and also too, because there was a whole period of where they weren't allowed into stations, um, it was the keeping out period that they were able to observe from a distance. So they weren't just observing the people, they were observing the animals. Um, Because originally sheep were tried to be put up into Queensland, Um, but it was, you know, the hookworm and the spear grass and everything. And there is still sheep in Queensland, but cattle were a lot more hardier for the environment. And so when cattle originally first came up, they tried spearing cattle like they had sheep and it was nothing to see a cow with seven or eight spears out of it because they, at that time they hadn't learned that cattle have a very thick leathery skin and, and that they would have to kill them, which they were doing for food um, because their resources had been, they'd been pushed out of where their resources were um, that they would have to kill them differently. So it was that whole observation. So they weren't just observing um, the people, they were observing the animals. And I think that's where they would have learnt about um, the actions of the horse and then would have seen the white man coming um, on these big, big horses. 
Yeah, and they weren't doing it to get themselves educated. They were doing it for survival. And when survival is there, you become pretty resourceful. Definitely. And and we actually had um, an agricultural system here within Australia um, prior to the English coming here. Um, we had stockyards. They were rudimentary stockyards that emus would be mustered into or kangaroos would be mustered into. Mustered into. We also had grain silos where grains would be stored from the grasses that were grown across the plains um, and they would be harvested every year. Um, Mitchell, um, one of our explorers, talks about it in his diaries and there's several other um, colonisers and explorers that travelled the country that have shown and talked about these sites of seeing these large agricultural areas that Aboriginal people were using prior to um, what we know as the industry today. Yeah, and a dark emu is a great book for that as oh. well. The name of the author escapes me, but it's uh, yeah. Bruce Pascoe. There we go. Yes, Just yeah, as I'm that... finishing up my paper, his book was sort of coming out, and I was like, "Good." <laughs> yeah, wonderful. So there are resources. You do have to go and dig for them, um, but there definitely are resources out there to learn how the land was managed sustainably before white man came along there's a lot we can learn from it there's so much we can learn if we just stop and listen tell me about some more women what else did you find about these extraordinary women what was it they were doing so you had the four types of horses that they were trained to take out mustering yes you're talking about for yourself now when you go mustering you've got pens and you've got choppers and you've got the iron horse as in motorbikes and utes and things so what how would they have done it and how would they have trapped the cattle how would they have got the cattle in for slaughter how did it all work back then what did these women actually do so they probably were using a similar method um to myself in the way of trapping cattle onto water um because they were you know, still, they were. I'm open, even though I have a boundary fence, we're still very open range grazing because the amount of land that we have to mm. deal with. So they would have um, trapped onto a water system as well. Or there were cases where they would go out and they would look for where the cattle are. Um, they would, over a period of time, you do learn where cattle will sort of linger as well um, so you'd go out and then you just start pushing them all in together um, into a big mob um, which with Lawn Hill Station 13 women that would not have been uncommon to see that many people out on a muster on horses to bring in what they were bringing in um, so obviously once permanent yards were erected it was a lot easier for them to be able to um, muster do you know what kind of how much land they were working on? Um, a lot of them, the stations that, uh, that I've been on, um, like the one I'm on now, um, is two stations joined together, um, and one was seven hundred and fifty thousand. So the other would have been around six hundred and fifty thousand acres. Queensland, they were big places to start with. We were talking of millions of acres of land that. Would, be, would have been staked out. Um, and up north they had to take into account for the wet season. So not all the land was viable all the time. Mm -hmm. They were Bronco branding. So that's where you would, once you've got your mob together, so you've gone out, all the women have brought them in, um, or there could have been a few stockmen there as well. And they hold the mob and they would slowly pull a beast out, tie it to a post. Um, he'd have his brand put on, he'd be bang-tailed, so his hair cut off his tail, he'd be dehorned, and depending on what they're going to be doing with the cattle. So if they don't want bulls, they would be castrated, so they'd have steers. Um, obviously in those days a lot of it was done for meat, so all your cows, you'd earmark them, brand them, and they'd be pushed back into that mob. Um, so it would have been... A lot harder than what I'm doing now with the, the yard structure that I can hold the cattle in. I don't have to race in and scrub a cow. 
um, and pull it down. Oh, wow. So they would have done that. <laughs> pull it down to be able to implement all these things that you would do. That's incredible. It's just, it's the stuff of, you know, shows and rodeos now. It's not real life. It's crazy. How <laughs> old how old would these women have been doing this? Oh, they would have ranged from a young age. Um, from what I found, because um, obviously I only had a certain amount of words to write about, but teenage girls, that 13, 14 age would start going out. Um, but... Morty that I talk about in my paper, she was up in her 60s still doing it. And Granny Winnie Cobbo, she was um, still writing in camp drafts, which is what we see today on TV, way up into her 60s. Um, These were, they were, um, (laughs) I hope I'm still alive and (laughs) properly after dealing with at that sort of age, let alone jumping off a horse to scruff a ball to tie it down so that you can process it. Um, I mean, that in, that's just amazing in anyone's eyes. Um, that's, yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's any words to describe those women that did other than they were simply amazing in those times, you know, and we're talking long, hot, humid days. So, and you're not going home to a nice, comfy bed at night time either. You're sleeping out on the ground near the yards with cattle. You're doing shifts of night watch, so you do so many hours and then you'd swap over with someone else so someone else can get a little bit of sleep. And that's not to say that a little bird might flutter out of a bush and scare your cattle and next minute you're off doing a wild chase of trying to get all the cattle back into a herd in the dark. Now, I've read about this before. That is an extraordinary thing. They do like a blind run, don't they? Yes, yes. (laughs) For no reason at all, it could be a leaf that flies in front of one that's a bit skiddy and off they go. As a mob, they're going. As a mob. (laughs) So as a musterer, what do you have to do and how on earth do you do it? Oh, in those days it would have been hard. So they would have had quite a few people up at night, probably four or five around the mob, keeping trying to keep them calm for the night, which is... Um, with your night horses, so they were normally horses that if they were quiet um, and very settled around the cattle, but if you needed them to be able to quick-witted, they were able to do that as well. So you're riding a horse in the dark through scrub. Yeah. Gee, you'd have to trust that horse well, wouldn't you? And, well, in some cases you might have only just broken that horse in not long ago. Yeah. Wow. And and that was another luck of the draw that what is this horse, you know, um, depending on how long the wet season had lasted or where you'd been and how long it had had with breaking in as to what sort of horse you might have got for that day as well. So that played a big, a big role in because um, some of these horses that had been running wild, um, yeah, they might have been, a bit, you know, a bit skittish and a bit hard to ride. <laughs> Yeah, a bit opposed to humans. Yes. So you'd have to get around them. Do you just wait until they kind of finish their run? Do they tire themselves out eventually and calm down or do you actually have to get around them? You have to get around them. So in some cases also um, in those areas, they would have used coaches, which are really well, quiet, well-handled cattle, and they would use them as decoys and, and a way into trying to help control the wild cattle. but. If a mob runs, you've got to go as fast as you can and get around in front of that lead to turn turn them back into where you need them to go. How do you slow them down? You just slow down and you hope the other... You trust your horse <laughs> um, and the ability to get around it because you can turn it. Your horse will. And some of these horses would have done it before, but um, it's been able to communicate with your horse and him knowing what you want to do or her and and just getting around and put leading basically turning that mob back into where they've come from and then it could take a while to calm them down too because they've just all been woken up so to speak you know i think about the the privilege that we have in our lives that you know we're going for deep connection with our own horses and we're 
wanting this beautiful relationship and trust so that we can do dressage nicely or we can jump nicely and everything's good. And then I think about the relationship and connection you have to have for a horse to take you blindly through the night around a mob of cattle that are going hell for leather. Um, and, and certainly in, in no consciousness, they're completely out of their brain, just going nuts. That must have been extraordinary. Um, I'm sure there was plenty of stock person knocked off their horse from a tree that was a bit too low. And <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There would have been a few accidents, I'm, I'm sure, along the way. Um, and we're talking about wild cattle that are not handled very often. Like the cattle that I have that are up around the homestead, like they don't even get up and move when I come over anymore, you know, those sorts of things. Whereas Yeah, they're like pets. Yeah, whereas the cattle at, at the other end of the property that we don't get to see very often and they're out in the scrub, they're not very friendly, um, especially the big bulls. Um, and I don't think people realise how big bulls actually are and because and, I know I didn't until we got one into the crushing process and and how tall, you know, and they can be over six foot tall. Um, wow. And two and a half to three foot wide, some of these bulls, like they're, we're not playing with small cattle um these are big things that animals that will kill you and the only time they see humans is when humans want to muster them and trap them and take half their family away anyway so yeah um, and and we do try to get round but when you're dealing with 1.3 million acres it's very hard to get round to everyone and once you get a clean skin bull which is a, a bull that hasn't been in the yards and processed and he gets a bit older he won't come in because they are very much loners. So, but if we process a mob of cattle and take a bull out of that mob, you go, you can go back there maybe in a month or so, and there'll be a new bull that will come in from the scrub. Wow! So, because they're very territorial. What other stock women did you find? What other stories have you got for us? These are amazing. Because it wasn't just women in Queensland, was it? Where else were these incredible stuff? Oh, no. So um, the areas that I looked at were um, Queensland, um, Northern Territory and the northern end of um, Western Australia. Um, So the contributors that I actually had, which were contributors for me, is the Aboriginal women that allowed me to be their voice, the instrument for their voice. So I spoke to Auntie um, Anna Cleary um, and I also spoke with Auntie Marge about Granny Winnie Cobbo um, and they grew up on a station, both those ladies grew up on stations in Queensland and Auntie Minnie, who's a coal woman, and Nancy Watson. So um, they were the contributions that I got from people that are still alive today but I had several several women across various areas. So I had women from Karajini, which is in Western Australia. I had women from the Yamaji tribes, which is also a Western Australian. I had a lady, Ruby Desarge. She was probably one of the first ladies that I came across, and she was from Queensland. So I had, once I actually found my first few women that's when I started to find a lot more but it wasn't very easy because we're talking about a time when Aboriginal women weren't allowed to be hired as stock women either. I can't imagine the pay was any good when they did actually get hired. Well a lot of them didn't get paid at all. That's what I was Um, thinking. They were given rations, tea, coffee and the luxury of being on a station without in some cases, um, the fear of the native police. So in some cases, pastoralists offered them a protection from native police because we're also talking about a period of stolen generation children, so where stockmen might have had relations with Aboriginal women and then those children were not, for want of better words, the right colour, so they were taken um, by the government to look after them because they knew best. But in these areas where we're talking about too, because the lack of an, an inability to get decent stock workers, it was in 
the pastoralist's best interest to hide these women and their children because that would be his next stop team that he could train on the land. Because when they weren't educated, there was no, we will give you education. And those Aboriginal women would teach pastoralist children um, how to ride horses, how to read the land. A lot of them would speak English. Um, those women were looking after their children and, and teaching them all about the environment that they were living in. They just become more and more incredible the longer you speak about them. <laughs> <laughs> what it must have been like. You can't even begin to imagine what it must have been like. I it was I must say it was a very it was a very hard paper for me to write. I had to get because it was to to read some of these government documents and historical documents and the treatment of our Indigenous people in this country was just, I couldn't comprehend that someone could even have those thoughts with the atrocities that were going on and, and I had to read through all of those sorts of things. So I would get upset and then I would get angry but then I could become objective about ensuring that I could write something positive for our children to have as a knowledge base for the future and, and giving a sense of pride that, you know, this could have been your grandmother that was a stockwoman um, and giving the young kids that we've got today, instead of having all these negative perpetuations that we see within the media, having a positive story that they can relate to, like giving them a sense of strength and a sense of hope. And pride. That they can do it too. So I had to talk about negative aspects of, of the industry, but I did try to put as much positive information about these women and their stories and what it was like for them um, to grow up. And and I just see it as they must have extremely strong, resilient women to live through those times. Any one of those things could break a person. You know, in, in fear of your own life because your land has literally been taken from you and you're told you don't live here anymore, you have no land and you've lived on this land for generations and generations and you are literally the oldest known humans on the planet to lose your sacred sites. So you're living in fear of your own life and then you finally get something to do so you at least get a bit of food and the job that you've got to do is just unbelievable in in every sense of the word just any of those jobs building the house or doing the stock work for anyone could have broken them as well and then having a child and living in fear of your child being taken from you it's just it was just relentless it, it was and it went on for a long time even after aboriginal people got citizenship rights here in in the late 60s um you know White Australian policy just changed its name and and the atrocities still sort of occur. And I think we're seeing the ripple effects of those government policies that were originally put into place. I did write an article about closing the gap for Indigenous children because they were, uh, uh, we're having big troubles here in Western Australia with education and, and government cutting services and um, how can you close a gap that was... It might not have been this government, but it was the original policies were installed by government that we don't teach, you know, um, we don't educate Aboriginal people. And so they, we were all put behind the eight ball before we even started. There's no reading and writing. <laughs> you don't need all that. And, and, and a welfare dependency cycle was created. So, um, but I, in my paper, I also, there's people, Aboriginal men and women, over here in WA that some people get angry about their treatment but they feel a sense of pride about what they were actually doing and they, when they did get paid, they earned their money and I think that's something all teenagers and, and young people today sort of had a, a lack of sense of hard work and what it was actually like to live in those days and earn your dollar and, and not just get... If you can't get a job, you get money from welfare. So, um, and I think that doesn't matter if you're Indigenous or, or, or non-Indigenous. Um, it's that sense of pride that you got from working. And some of these people weren't paid any money at all. 
and we're just given rations and and clothing. But I think the advantage for them was being able to live on country and that is very important to Indigenous people is to have your connections with your country. What does it give you? A sense of belonging. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very hard thing to describe. Um, I suppose it's like when you went to Birdsville, that feeling that you got. I feel at home when I go back home to country, but even over here where I always make sure I do protocol and talk to the ancestors and let them know who I am and why I'm here and be respectful of the land. It's a strange connection. It's, it's a spiritual connection that you have with that country. It's um, being able to put your feet in the dirt and that energy exchange between Mother Nature and yourself. It's, I don't think it's something you can really describe, but it's a feeling that you get. Um, your heart feels at ease. Like a family member almost. Definitely, because, you know, that's where our family comes from. We all go back and, and come forth from, you know, this, this land. Mm, that's extraordinary. So for all of us listening today who are non-Aboriginal, what can we do to make positive change in this world for all of us? What needs to happen? What's one piece of advice you can give us today? <laughs> what needs to happen? I think we need to have a better understanding of each other. It's about talk, not being scared to talk to an Aboriginal person in a respectful way. Um, and And... Like I talk about it with, you know, there's a lot more. People see we have paintings, we have our petroglyphs that are on the rocks um, and we have our boomerangs and, and we have our clapsticks, but there's a lot more to us than, I mean, our paintings, they're our sacred scrolls as well. They tell stories of the land or waterholes or, or walking tracks and I don't think that we can move forward until we can both have an understanding of each other. Um, and that everybody's different. But for Indigenous people, we have a very strong connection with our country and that is very important and we need to be able to look in after our country. When our country becomes sick, people in that area become sick. But I don't, unless we write about, like what I have with women that have been stock women that helped in building this country, and still we, until we start writing history as to what it really was, then I don't think anything's going to change. And I think it's going to be a slow process, but I think if we can start having positive stories and positive role models and just connecting with people as humans and talking without any sort of stereotyping which has been perpetuated, that we can slowly start to move forward. And that's a really important point um, because I believe Aboriginal culture does not write things down. They don't write books to pass on. So... It's not just Aboriginal people, I believe, are like 2.9 or less percent of the actual population. Yeah. So if, if we as people of Australia, no matter what origin you have, no matter where your history lies, if we don't start speaking to Aboriginal people as well and finding out the culture of this land, then it is going to be lost. So I think it is all of our responsibility, not just Aboriginal people, to open these conversations and learn a lot more about our country and this, this place that's so incredibly abundant if we look after it. And, and, and you will find a lot of pastors um, have now joined with um, the traditional custodians of various areas and um, especially in the Kimberleys and the Territory, they're using the Aboriginal techniques of fire burning, um, which was something that's been done for thousands of years to regenerate the land. Um, so having those techniques coming back to life is really, you know, for me that's a start because it means people are listening and with the impacts that we are having on the environment as people with rubbish and, and everything else that goes along with being human, we need to start looking after what we've got under our feet um, and she will look after us. 
I do believe that. Now, your thesis is 389 pages here sitting in front of me. Yeah. Was, that cathar- was that cathartic in any way? <laughs> I know you said it brought up a lot of things. How was it by the time you got to the end? I felt very proud to be able to write um, and honoured to be able to share these women's stories and give them a voice um, and try and give them some acknowledgement for for what they've done. Um, And it made me feel positive about where where we'd come from Um, amongst all the, the atrocities that had gone. It was like this shining light had sort of come through um because there were days where I cried and it was difficult to you know think I can't do this I've just I can't do it but I just knew somebody had to do it I think it was something that needed to be shared and, and that these women needed to be acknowledged and I suppose it was a privilege for me to be able to find all these stories and and tell their stories through the narrative that I created um, of using my own lived experiences of being a stockwoman. It's brilliant. And if anyone would like to have a little sit down and read of this incredible paper, how do we find it? So it can be found on um, the Deakin University website through their library, through Deakin Research Online. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. Well, Dr. Tori Simone, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. I feel so honoured to be able to be a part of the story of bringing these stories to light, to tell the real story of these unbelievably extraordinary women that you've uncovered. (laughs) Thank you for talking with me and I hope people enjoy um, learning something new. Yeah. That... They probably didn't know before. Yeah, and um, just the fact that we know about these women now, they um, their legacy will absolutely live on. Beautiful. Well, thanks again, Tori, and I look forward to learning a lot more about my country and its culture as I grow. Thank you. I'm on a mission to create a community of conscious horse people so that their horses all over the world can live a better life. This is a big mission with a wonderful message and it needs your help. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to join me on my mission of making the world a better place for horses by bringing consciousness to the horse world, please do one of the following. You can go over to our Patreon page at patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash come along for the ride podcast and become a subscriber to the show. As Patreon members, you're helping this podcast become a weekly show once again. And remember, any funds that go over the cost of production will go into new and exciting projects that you, as a subscriber, will have a say in. You could also pop over to EdenRiverEquestrian.com and see our range of sustainable, ethical and organic gear for both horses and humans. Remember, 50% of profits go back to helping horses all over the world live a better life. Or you could leave us a review and tell the world why you love this podcast. You can do that through whichever app it is that you're listening now. The best place to do it is through iTunes. They give juice that gives other bits juice that boosts the podcast up. And basically that gets it into more people's ears so that we can make a real difference in the world. You could also share this podcast with a friend. Tell everyone you know about it and guide them to an episode that you think they'd really enjoy. All the links you need can be found in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and I'll catch you next time on Come Along for the Ride.